Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Um, I'm going to make my standard plea at the start of the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if you are finding it helpful, if you have found it helpful as you go through the college process or your kids go through the college process, please help others find us by posting a review uh, on Apple Podcasts. So the more reviews we get there, the higher we rise and the easier it is for people to find us. Um, all right, so today's show, we are answering your questions. So thank you to those of you who submitted questions on LinkedIn, on Facebook, via email. Um, we're going to be answering those for you today. Um, but before we get to that, um, we have another in our med school series. And joining me for that is my colleague um, and a former director of admissions at both Stanford and Columbia Medical Schools, Lauren DiProspero. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for being here today and um, excited to talk about this next one. I don't know. Excitement might be slightly the wrong thing, but I am excited to talk about this because it's such valuable information that I want people to be aware of. Um, You know, we often think about the biggest hurdle of becoming a doctor is getting into medical school, right? You you get into medical medical school, you graduate, and you're a doctor, but that's not entirely true. So, Walk us through the other steps that are required before you actually become a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. So to become a doctor, you have to graduate from medical school. But to practice medicine, you have to be licensed in all 50 states. And to be licensed, you need to complete a residency program. This comes after medical school. And it doesn't matter what specialty you're in from family medicine to neurosurgery. And so sometimes people don't realize there is a residency and then people say, oh, that's just for neurosurgery or some big specialty. No, it's every single form of, of medicine. And a lot of people assume that it's just the next step, right? right? You just go on to formality. Yeah, exactly. But it's not. And there is a New York times article back in February that reported that there are about 10,000 medical school graduates that are chronically unmatched with residency programs. Right. A large number. Yeah, that's a huge number of people. And I guess my question for you is, why? So why are they unmatched? And why is this a problem? I think I know why it's a problem, but let's get to the heart of why it's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So there can be many different reasons for why somebody is unmatched. It could be personal reasons and things out of their control, given the way the matching process works. And the matching process is that medical students in their fourth year or their final year, because some students do take five years to complete medical school, and that's not unusual anymore, um, they have to match with a residency program. So that's that term match that, Mm -hmm. that I keep referring to. Um, but honestly, medical schools are graduating more students and residency programs are not increasing their spots. Right. So, so yeah, so that's sort of the, the big reason and overarching reason why. And the Association of Medical uh, American Medical Colleges released a study that said that between uh, by 2033, there's going to be a shortage of between 54,000 and almost 140,000 doctors. Wow. So that is huge for an aging population. Hopefully we never go through another pandemic, but a pandemic and other large medical challenges, that, that's, that's a huge problem. Well, and, and it does beg the question, which not, we aren't necessarily going to get into here today, which is why aren't residency programs increasing their spots, right? Because right. we need more doctors. We've got yeah. these people graduating. Mm-hmm. It seems like a win-win, but um, I know we're not going to talk about that. But there's another big there's another big issue with undermatching, yeah. right? Exactly, um, and that is students who are chronically unmatched are often saddled with a huge amount of debt with right. a degree that they can't use, and they might have even had debt from undergraduate. So that is a, a huge, huge problem. 
Right, because when you take on this debt, and it's often right over a hundred thousand oh, dollars easily, yeah. um, you take it on with the assumption that in a few years you'll be working as a doctor and you will start earning a lot of money, and that's how you're going to pay it off. But if you right. can never work as a doctor, right, it's kind of terrifying, actually. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So. You know, as you think, as we think about this, and there, for me, there are a lot of echoes here in college admissions in general, especially when we see students who are only applying to the most selective programs where the uh, competition for spots has far outpaced the number of spots. And, you know, they, they find themselves sometimes without options when it's time to enroll in college after their high school years. Um, this is, of course, a little bit different, but um, is there a way to kind of guard against being unmatched or is there something that students should be looking at when they look at their medical school options? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll talk a little bit about a few of the, the populations that have incredible challenges with this and then walking through how to kind of prevent against this as you're doing your medical school, because not all medical schools and student populations are going to be equal in the residency process, right? Mm-hmm. So students who go to medical school abroad, right? Mm-hmm. It's somewhat popular to go to the Caribbean to do your medical school, um, not because it's the Caribbean, but because they have slightly, um, it, it's slightly easier to get into those schools. Right. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier than a lot of mainland medical schools. And some residency programs will prioritize mainland medical schools. Mm -hmm. So what students really need to be thinking about as they're going through college, as they're thinking about their application at whatever point it is, is to really consider if it makes sense to apply to these schools, given their match rates. And not every school in the Caribbean is created equal. So some have higher match rates than others. So it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be considering it. But think really critically about how you can take that time to be more competitive for a mainland medical school. or Maybe consider what other role on the healthcare team you're interested in. Maybe that's a different career in allied health. Really think critically so you're not in that situation of, wow, I graduated, but I have all this debt and I can't get into a residency program. Right. Well, right. The point being, if you can't get into a mainland program, you really, really, really need to weigh your options before you commit to one where the the matching rate might be really low. And yes. maybe you are like, like you just said, better off working in the medical field. But, you know, I know for a lot of people, at least those that I've talked to, and they tend, they do tend to be on the younger side. Mm -hmm. They're very like, it's medical school or nothing. I have to be a doctor. Right. But it might be nothing. And is that really what you want? Right. And plus that. So, yes. yes. Exactly. And, And often students haven't spent the time exploring what it means to be a doctor. They haven't done, and and that's because they're in high school. I'm not expecting them to have done it. But part of your preparation in college for medical school is spending that time shadowing, Mm -hmm. spending time in healthcare settings to see which is the right match for you. You might have always thought you want to be a doctor, but then you realize, wow, I like the relationship a nurse has with a patient better, or PT really speaks to me for one reason or another, right? They're all of these different things. And then maybe you don't like the sight of blood. So maybe you work on the business side of a hospital or, right. you know, there's so many different fields that are just, you know, within medicine that we don't always think about. Right. Absolutely. And then there's another population that yeah. sometimes finds a challenge, right? With matching. Yes. yes. International students. Mm-hmm. And that's both students who have spent time in the U.S. as an undergraduate student. Maybe they've lived their whole life in the U.S. Um, and those who attended undergraduate colleges abroad and coming back. And that actually still kind of affects um, U.S. residents and citizens as well going abroad to mm-hmm. other, other schools. Not all um, residency programs are really willing to sponsor those visas. So I worked at Columbia, and I don't know what it is today, but New York Presbyterian was not sponsoring visas. So mm. even their own, not their own students, they're separate entities, but the medical school affiliated with them right, was they they wouldn't sponsor visas from students from that medical school. So so certainly something to think about as you're going through the process. Yeah, I mean, a huge thing. Yeah. 
So, all right. So what can you, we talked about matching rates a little bit and thinking long and hard before you go abroad to go to medical school. Um, What are the things can pre-med or students and applicants do before they commit to their med school? Yeah. So as you're building that medical school list, think about um, what are the residency match rates? Because even in the U.S., not every school is 100% match rate, right? It's not just the Caribbean medical schools. I don't want to be picking on just them. Not all U.S.-based medical schools have high match rates. What is their board passage rate, right? How And, and to, to further drill down on that match rate, which I'm not sure we've, we've done a, a great job of explaining exactly what that means, the match rate is the percentage of graduating medical students who are matched with a residency program at, at that individual medical school. Got so it. some have that near 100%. Some have substantially lower. Sometimes you might have a very small class. And so one person doesn't match and you have 100 students in your class and you have a 90% match rate. Right? Yeah. There, there can be details behind that number. But where the students are matching to residency isn't as important because you don't know yet how competitive you're going to be. You don't know maybe what specialty you're going to, to want to be focused on, but that they're matching is important. And additionally, to make sure that every school on your list has what's called an LCME accreditation. That stands for the Liaison Committee on Medical Education. It doesn't help explain what that is, but essentially it's an accreditation process that schools have to go through. Um, Finding out who is doing the advising on the match process, right? This person is going to prepare you for your specialty of choice. Sometimes you have to take that fifth year to do um, extra research to be competitive for a residency, or they can guide you to a less um, selective uh, specialty Mm -hmm. to help you match and find a fit for you because you're just, you know, not as competitive for that specialty. And then finally, look to see if the school is going under, uh, undergoing a curriculum restructure, right? Some questions to be asked is where are they in the process? And what is the impact for your specific class? How are grades going to differ if they're transitioning while you're there? Mm. And how are they going to address those changes in the residency process? Because sometimes they don't do a great job and you might score really well on tests one time and you go to a whole new new grading system and it just changes Mm. and it's a different way of learning and and all of these things. So understanding that I think is really, really crucial. Is that a common thing for schools to undergo curriculum changes or is that kind of a Mm -hmm. happens, but not super frequently? It's pretty common. Um, I would say they probably, you know, look over their curriculum every couple of years. There was a huge switch, um, we had just finished one at Columbia when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what cycle they might be looking at it. And it might depend upon the school, but they're certainly always thinking about, are we presenting this in the best way? What is the best way for our students to learn, to prepare for any exams that they might have and, and all of those things. So I can't say that there would be a certain cycle, but you know, schools certainly do this and it's certainly something to, to keep in mind. Got it. Okay. Well, last thing is that, of course, lots of our listeners are high school students or the parents of high school students. Um, so they are right now thinking, oh, I'm going to be pre-med. When I go to college, my goal ultimately is medical school, but they're not applying to medical school right now. Any things for them specifically to be thinking about today? Yeah. So, you know, for the vast majority of high school students, this is just information to tuck in your back pocket for a couple of years. You don't need to be thinking about this until you get to the point of applying to medical schools in those months before where you're starting to put together your list and determining, are you the strongest applicant at this point to apply? That's when you want to start thinking about that as you're starting to think about that application. But those students who are considering BSMD programs need to be doing the same research, right? Because you're, you're going to be Yes, you're going to be a pre-med student. You're conditionally accepted to the medical school that's affiliated with that program. It doesn't mean you're absolutely walking in the door. You have to hit a couple of markers to get there, right? Right, right. Most people think it's a guarantee, but no, you need to keep up your GPA and a few other things. But doing that research now is important because if you're in a BSMD program that has a low residency match rate, right, you might be in that position 
six, seven, eight years, whatever, whatever the length of your program is, because you are essentially choosing a medical school right now to attend. Right. And what good does that kind of advancing yourself or taking the, oh, I don't have to worry about applying to medical school out of the equation. It doesn't really do you any good if at the end of the entire process, you don't get matched with the residency and then exactly. it's all kind of been for naught. So yeah, exactly. yeah, it's a little, the reason I said I was super excited because it's a little scary. I mean, when yeah. we, this came up because we were reading the New York Times article that came out and there were some really terrible stories in there of yeah. people who are now three years uh, and they haven't matched. And then after that point, it's almost it's not impossible that to imagine that you'll match, but it's pretty unlikely if you haven't yeah. matched after about three years, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'd say it's it's exciting because it's educational for us to learn yes. to be able to share that, but not exciting for the fact that this exists. And hopefully over the next couple of years, residency programs start needing where, where medical schools are. And if you're curious about that, the New York Times does talk about why there is a mismatch between medical schools and residency programs. Right, right. And then to your point about what we're going to see in terms of the need for physicians coming up in the future, hopefully they will figure out, oh, okay, we need to create more residency opportunities exactly. because we need more doctors at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we are answering your questions. So don't go away. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're doing that segment that we do every month where we answer your questions. Um, and joining me today is Michelle Richardson, who is my colleague and a former financial aid officer at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, also a former executive at both Chase Student Loans and Sally May. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Beth. Thanks for joining. We have a ton of questions, so I am going to just hop right in here when I find my list of questions, which are, there they are. Okay. Um, all right. Here is the first. It comes to us from Gia. Gia asks or says, my husband and I have one daughter. She's a high school sophomore and we have saved for her education via a 529 plan. We both have good paying jobs, but we have heard college is expensive. Ooh, you've heard right, Gia. What can we do to reduce the cost of her education? Wonderful question, a question that we hear a lot with families that we work with. Um, I think given the fact that their daughter is currently a, a sophomore um, and maybe based on the information she provided that they have good paying jobs and they have saved for college, really one of the best ways for this family potentially to reduce the cost of their daughter's education is to uh, select maybe the, the right college or create the best college list where 
she can have schools from an admission perspective where she could have great opportunities perhaps to maximize merit scholarships. And uh, merit scholarships are those dollars that many institutions offer uh, incoming students in order to recruit them. Um, And they're typically awarded through admissions and more often than not, they're not based on financial need. So uh, in order to reduce the cost, uh, trying to look at institutions that offer merit scholarships and uh, schools where their daughter might perhaps rise to the top of the applicant pool from an admission perspective uh, where they could get uh, maximum merit opportunity. Yeah, that's really great advice. I mean, I think that the one thing we talk about on the show all the time is the fact that the greatest source of money to fund college, um, scholarship money that is, is generally from the colleges themselves. And not all colleges do give merit money, and those that do generally give it to those students who they really, really want. Um, but if you are looking for a way to reduce the cost of college, that is a great way to start. All right, Michelle, you have a question for me. I do. Uh, Christine asked on, on Twitter, what the heck is going on with wait lists this year? Are selectives all really full, or does something not add up? They're all really full. Um, so I think the thing that's really important to understand about wait lists is that the how frequently schools go to their wait list and how many students come off the wait list really can fluctuate from year to year. Um, typically speaking, you're going to see more wait list activities at activity at public institutions that employ a wait list because oftentimes those schools are really they they have a they have a plan with the waitlist right they want to use the waitlist and they want to go to it sometimes for quite a few students not always but they're really at great pains not to over enroll and they're going to use that waitlist to make sure that they are going to get the exact right class size um especially at the more selective you get um, there are a lot of reasons why students end up on a wait list. We've talked about it in the past, but I, uh, you know, I, at the risk of being the first one to let people know this, sometimes the wait list is really just a nice way of saying no. Uh, maybe you have a really great applicant from a school that you love and that you see students from and, you, you know, you want to keep seeing more great students. But for whatever reason, that student just doesn't stand out in your pool that year and, um so you don't, but you don't really want to say no. So you put them on the wait list. It's really just a nice way of saying no. Um, and I would say that there's a fair number of waitlist decisions that really are that. The other issue is that um, you really don't know where your holes are going to be. So um, the more selective you are, generally, the more focused you are on enrolling a class that is from every state in the country and uh, uh, as many different countries as possible. And so what you don't know as your results start to come in is maybe you're short a student from Wyoming, or maybe you didn't get enough engineers from Texas. Um, And so you want kind of representation of all of your different, if you have different undergraduate schools, um, you want representation from different states, you want as much diversity on your waitlist as you have in your class, because if you end up not enrolling enough diversity, you can go for those specific pieces to your waitlist. But it does happen that especially the more selective you get and at the very most selective level, it's possible that they could have a group on the waitlist that is three times the size of the enrolled class and not pull more than one or two students from the waitlist. Um, and we did not see much uh, movement at all at the most selective level this year. And that does not surprise me. And it's not that something doesn't add up. It's simply that um, some of these schools did fill a big percentage of their class in early decision. If they had early decision, um, they were pretty confident that the students they admitted were going to enroll and they were right. Um, in some cases, a few schools over-enrolled a little bit, and they're hoping that some summer melt will even that out. But um, 
I can't say it doesn't surprise me that schools didn't go to their wait list, but I also can't say that I am surprised, if that makes sense, right? So um, you just kind of never know what's going to happen. And in a year like this one, uh, you really didn't know. So the fact that they didn't go to their wait list... I believe they're really full. Um, and it's not some sort of like nefarious plot going on behind the scenes that no one's hearing about. <laughs> so anyway, um, all right, Michelle, we have another question for you. And this comes to us from Tina. Um, and it's also related to 529 plan. And Tina's asking, my daughter's starting college in the fall. Is it too late to start a 529? That's intriguing. I had never thought about starting one this late. So what do you say? Well, um, I would say to Tina, kind of think about why you are thinking about starting a 529 plan. Typically, most families will start a 529 plan early on because one of the benefits of a 529 is there is a tax deferral on the growth of the investments that are in the 529 plan. So given the fact that your daughter is starting college this fall, um, is it too late? It's never too late to start a 529 plan, but you may not reap the the benefits. And I I think perhaps another consideration is the fact that 529 plans are an investment. They're not a a liquid or a typical saving uh, account. So you do have some risk there with with a 529 plan. Um, One thing I will say is there are about 30 out of the 50 states who offer state-sponsored 529 plans that offer a state income tax incentive. Uh, If you open and contribute to your state 529 plan uh, in the state where you reside, um, typically it's a tax deduction. So it might not be a a huge financial benefit, but there, you know, might be a a little bit. I would say one thing uh, I would say to Tina would be, um, you know, instead of maybe starting a 529 plan, maybe check at the institution her daughter is enrolling in because they might offer, if, if Tina is looking at ways to make payments to pay or save for college, she might want to look and see if that school has a tuition payment plan mm-hmm. uh, where you can make installment payments for the directly billed costs over the the term or the semester. Um, The nice thing with those plans is they typically don't charge interest. So um, that might be something uh, for Tina to to consider. But um, in short, is it too late? It's never too late to start a 529, but you do want to make sure you understand the uh, reason why you're thinking of of starting a 529 plan. And um, also one other comment I'll make is you get the tax benefit from a 529 plan as long as you are using your contributions and any growth or earnings to pay for qualified education expenses. So, Again, depending on, you know, whether Tina has, a, you know, a significant amount that she might want to front load and, and start a 529 and maybe gain a little growth. Uh, but given the fact that her daughter is starting this fall, um, those investments are probably going to be very conservatively invested. So, again, depending upon the, the market there. Uh, maybe some market risk and and might not be um, a lot of of gain there from a a tax benefit. All right. Lots to think about. So I'm glad that you more or less shared what I thought, which is it's a little late and there might be better ways to uh, set aside that money at this point. (laughs) Exactly. All right. You have a question for me. Yes, I do. So... The question for you is a long one. It comes from Sarah. And Sarah says, my daughter is a junior who is interested in health sciences, especially a track that will prepare for graduate school in physical therapy. 
is it imperative that she receives a letter of recommendation from a health or math teacher? Her chemistry teacher has been remote all year, and therefore she does not have a close relationship with him. That would only leave her sophomore AP bio teacher, and we don't believe that she would be able to speak to our daughter personally. We've heard various opinions. What do you say, Beth? Sure. Well, let's for starters, um, we did a segment, a, a big segment on recommendation letters in last week's show. So if you go to the show that aired on June 3rd, there is a whole segment on how to think about who to ask for a recommendation letter. Um, but I will still dig into this a little bit here. The first um, thing is that typically speaking, most colleges want to hear from a core teacher and core would be math, science, English, history, or foreign language. So for me, a health teacher doesn't really hit that. And I would say that unless a school is specifically asked or a program for a health teacher recommendation, I would not consider a health teacher. Um, my also my general advice here is you want to pick a teacher who knows your student and likes your student as in has a positive feeling about your student but you don't really need the teacher to be able to talk so much about all the things you do outside of the classroom. Really what the recommendation should share is how you handle the subject matter. Are you a good math student? Are you a good science student? Um, what do you bring to the table? So while I appreciate the idea that she's been remote and so her chemistry teacher doesn't, she doesn't have a close relationship with that teacher, that doesn't mean the teacher doesn't know her, doesn't know how she handles science, doesn't know how her mind works when it comes to science. So I wouldn't automatically write that person off. And I would say the same about the AP bio teacher I don't really know what it means that you don't think she'd be able to speak to your daughter personally. Um, if she could speak to your daughter's ability in bio, that's really the primary thing I would be considering and thinking about. So, you know, and then the bigger part of your question, which is, does it have to be in a specific subject area? And the answer is no. I mean, your daughter is not applying to physical therapy today. So that's going to come in four years after or five years, whatever, your daughter's a junior. So five years, you know, she's going to apply to college. Um, generally speaking, when you apply to college and you select a major on your application, all you're really doing is telling a school, this is what I think I'm going to major in. At most schools, you are going to have usually until some point in your sophomore year, often the end of your sophomore year, before you officially declare a major. So really, you know, if you do select a major, um, it is going to shine more light on your ability in that area. So if you selected some type of uh, science major, or if the school had a a particular related major um, to her ultimate area of interest, yeah, it's it's likely that her ability in math and science is going to be a component of her success in that. And they might like to hear from one of those teachers, but unless they specify in the application that you must submit a letter from one of those teachers, that is not a requirement. So if your daughter ultimately has um, a an English teacher or a history teacher or a Spanish or a French teacher who can give a better overview of your child in the classroom, then there's no reason you couldn't use one of those teachers as a recommendation writer, right? So you want someone who can talk about the student's academic ability in the classroom and who likes the student from the perspective of they're going to write a positive letter. Um, and it's not going to be a situation where the student and the teacher don't get along. That is, of course, a bad person to ask. But um, so there really isn't a right answer here because I don't know where she's applying. I don't know if she's selecting a specific major. The one thing I can say is that I don't think a health teacher is your right path. And I wouldn't write off chemistry or bio um, based on how you're describing it here at any rate. And check out the June 3rd show because we dig into it even more deeply there. Um, okay, Michelle, I am, let me just see here. So we're going to, um, I think what I'm going to do is stop here. We're going to take a quick break, um, for a commercial and then we come back. Michelle, I'll have another question for you. Great. All right. Don't go away. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We are answering your questions. So uh, I want to get right back into it so we can get to as many of them as possible. Um, all right, Michelle, we get a, have a question here from Steve who says to us, we'll be paying our first college bill this summer. Where do we find student loans? Ah, good question and, and good timing for this question. So the first thing I would say to Steve is, uh, have they filled out the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid? Uh, because if the family did indeed do that, Steve's uh, student or, or child should be able to have access to the federal direct student loan program where uh they can borrow up to five thousand five hundred if uh, Steve's student is an uh, incoming freshman. A lot of times, that's kind of the first financing or go-to student loan option for families. Um, it's typically at a lower interest rate, and it's basically the only loan a student can borrow today on their own without any credit history or mm-hmm. a, a co-signer. So I. You know, oftentimes when we talk to families, that's kind of the the first option. Now, a lot of times families need more than five thousand five hundred if they're looking at financing. So there are some other options. There's a, another federal option um, that is called the Plus Loan. Plus is an acronym that stands for the Parent Loan for Undergraduate Students. So uh, again, if, if Steve, if your family filled out the FAFSA, um, some institutions will put the student or the family's eligibility for the federal parent plus loan on the award notification. So you might want to check out your student's uh, financial aid information that is typically located in in the student portal. Uh, Most uh, families are able to finance or borrow up to the cost of attendance minus any other uh, student loans or scholarships or any other uh, work-study financial aid dollars. So that might be an option uh, for you, uh, Steve. Um, Another consideration, uh, depending upon the state where uh, you may reside, some state uh, higher education entities offer uh, state loan programs, Um, not all states, but those loan programs can typically be um, at pretty favorable interest rates, um, and they may or may not require, uh, Steve, uh, you can either be the borrower or you could be a, a co-signer with the, the student being also a, a co-borrower. Um, 
And, and finally, there are also private, what we call private lenders or student loan or parent loan entities. And these are typically banks or credit unions or lending entities that offer credit-based student loans where the student is the borrower and they require a credit-worthy co-signer, or many of them also offer just credit-based parent loans where the student is not on the hook uh, financially uh, for that loan, but but the parent is. So there are uh, quite a few financing options. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of considerations for families to look at with uh, any student loan financing outside of just looking at interest rates, but determining who do you want to be responsible for the loan, what are the repayment terms, and uh, um, so those are, are some options that Steve could look at. Awesome. All right. You have more questions for me? Yes, I do. Great. Let's go to the next one. And this one comes from Amy. Um, Amy says her son is a junior and will be applying to college in the fall of 2021. He's a 4.0 student with mostly honors classes and just a couple of AP courses. His PSAT scores are in the range he needs to be for the schools he wants. In the quest for any additional edge, Will his near-perfect attendance record and membership in National Honor Society be helpful at all? Um, Well, Amy, congrats for having a son who's doing really well. That's exciting, and it's always exciting when a PSAT score looks like it's in the right range, especially because PSAT scores are typically slightly lower than the student's SAT score. So um, it sounds like he's on target for those to be in range if he needs the scores. You know, will perfect attendance and membership in National Honor Society be helpful? Uh, They won't hurt in any way, shape, or form, but I personally never saw either come up in committee as a conversation point. So I would say that they aren't things in my mind that are going to give him an edge. I think they're wonderful, but if you're looking for ways in which to get an edge, I would say that things like um, leadership. So if he's in National Honor Society and he has a possibility of being president of National Honor Society, that could be a nice piece of, of leadership. Um, you know, just being involved outside of the classroom and finding ways to, do more in the things he already does um, can be a way to make his application a little bit more impactful. Those are the kinds of things that are typically going to um, get noticed in the admissions process versus, I mean, it's always great to see someone who is generally at school because that's a good sign that they're going to show up to class. Um, so it's, but it's less that I would say that perfect attendance catches your eye and more that uh, if you see a student who is chronically absent, that might concern you a little bit. So do those two things help? Mm, they don't hurt. Um, I don't know that they're going to totally give him an edge, though, as you've defined it there. Um, all right, Michelle, I think we have a couple of minutes. Um, I mean, we should have plenty of time for you to answer this next one. But um, this okay. comes from Keith who says, my son is finishing up his junior year and started looking at colleges. I have gone out to some college websites and I'm trying to figure out exactly how much it will cost us. What should I be looking for to nail down the price? Ah, Great question. So um, there's a couple of components I would point out here for Keith and and families who are looking for the cost. we refer to cost as the cost of attendance. And you'll find that each institution does create an estimated cost of attendance for a student to attend their institution for one academic year. So the the cost of attendance, um, a couple things to be uh, aware of is it is the all-in price. It's uh, sometimes we refer to it as the sticker price, or I like to say sticker sticker shock price at times. Um, but the cost of attendance would include 
directly build costs like tuition and fees and on-campus room and board. Um, but it would also include indirect costs that a student may have, such as books and supplies and transportation and personal expenses. And I always suggest to families that as they are looking at schools and uh, looking for the cost of attendance on the school's website, I would go through each line item um, as a family. For example, transportation. Some families, if the student is not taking a car to school or uh, and not flying across the country a handful of times during the year, um, their cost of attendance line item in uh, for transportation might be significantly higher than the school estimate, or it could be lower. Um, so kind of going through those costs, but Keith, you'll want to look for the, the cost of attendance. And then another item that you'll want to look for would be what we call a, a net price calculator. And sometimes these are referred to as a financial aid estimator, um, but every college is mandated to have a net price calculator out on their website. Um, and because schools oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes will discount whether it's through a merit scholarship or, or maybe a, a need-based grant, um, the family may not pay the full cost of attendance. And, and so by running a net price calculator, uh, you might be able to get a better idea at that institution of what your family's out-of-pocket price may be at that institution. All right. That is very helpful and something that I am also struggling with these days because my own son is. And so I'm on there doing all of these things. I love the advice. Awesome. Awesome. That's All great. right. We have, uh, we should have time for at least one more. So what do you have for me? Oh, all right. How about this one? Does my student have to take both the SAT and the ACT? Uh, which one is preferred? Uh, so no, your student may not have to take any standardized test, but they definitely do not need to take both the SAT and the ACT. And in fact, the only time that I have ever encouraged a student to take both was when they were working towards a specific score on one test that for whatever reason, they just couldn't even get close and um, had taken the one test maybe twice and it they weren't showing any improvement and they made a decision to try the other and did some prep and actually achieved a much better score on the other one. And I can literally think of two times in the past probably 15 years that that has happened. So the answer is a resounding absolutely not do you need to take both the SAT or and the ACT. Also, no preference for one or the other. So for colleges who are requiring test scores or, or who uh, made them optional, um, they will accept either the SAT or the ACT, and they don't care which one. I once got into a, I would hesitate to call it a battle because it really wasn't a battle, but I, I got into an argument with someone who... I found incredibly ill-informed, but he was, man, was he convinced he was right that because um, more students that he knew took the SAT, that therefore, and, and the students that he knew who took the SAT were having more success at the most selective levels, that somehow there was a preference for those. But having actually done admissions at that level, I can tell you there was zero preference. All we really cared was, had the student gotten the score that we were looking for, and could we then move on? Um, and it didn't really matter what it came in, the SAT or the ACT. So there is also no preference. But it does raise a good question about, does the student need to do any tests at all? And so a couple of thoughts on this. Um, the first is, if you cannot test safely, do not test. Unless you're applying to college in Florida or Georgia, where the state schools are back to requiring test scores, the likelihood is high that you could compile a list of schools that aren't going to be requiring test scores for this year. So this is really advice for this current group of juniors who are going to be seniors. 
And if you can't test safely, then don't bother. There is no school that is worth getting sick and having serious consequences to that just so that you can show a test score. Um, that said, if you think that um, your test scores might add a positive element to your application and you can test safely, you might consider doing either the SAT or the ACT. Um, I'm always hesitant to say you definitely don't have to do tests because what if you fall in love with a school that wants testing and you could have done testing and you didn't do it? Um, but at the same time, if you really are opposed to taking standardized tests, there are enough schools that are test optional this year that I think you probably will have plenty of options. So, And if you are a student for whom testing isn't a particular strength and the scores are likely not going to add to your application, that's another situation which you could either consider not testing at all or taking the test to see if perhaps you're wrong. And then if the scores really are what you figured, which is to say not great and not really adding a whole lot to your test, your application in a positive way, then at that point, you could certainly um, decide not to submit the scores if the school is test optional. Um, we, I wrote a blog recently with advice for this year's um, juniors, so you might want to check that out at blog.getintocollege.com, where I am writing about this very thing and situations where you might want to test and situations where you absolutely don't have to worry about it. But if you leave with no other thought than this, it is that you do not need to take both and that colleges don't have a preference for the SAT or the ACT. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Beth, for having me on. I had a great time. Absolutely. All right. Well, next week, um, Ian is going to be hosting, but I am actually going to be here. Um, I wrote another blog recently about going through this process with my own son, and Ian is having me on the show to kind of talk a little bit about what that's been like as a parent going through the process for the first time. Um, we're also going to be talking about tuition payment plans. Michelle mentioned that earlier in one of her answers, and we're going to cover those in a little bit more detail next week. We're also going to be laying out a plan for seniors. So for those of you who are uh, going, it's the summer before your senior year, you really need to make the most of this time as it relates to your college applications, and we are here to help you do that. Of course we are. Um, I'm going to make my final plug for you to review us on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, the easier it is for others to find us. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.